Well, this is part two of a series on New Covenant Evangelism. Let me just by brief review remind you of what we talked about in part one. In part one, I reminded you that the overall context for the Second Corinthians is the ministry of the New Covenant of the Spirit. That's an important phrase to remember. The ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit. That work that was at work in Paul and his associates as ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit was over and against and in contrast to the ministry of the letter of Paul's opponents, those whom he referred to as super-apostles. So that ministry of Paul was both the proclamation of the reconciling work of Christ and the appropriating work of the Spirit in those who believe. That which the Spirit begins in us, we are to continue by the Spirit to grow in, to work out in our life. It is by the Spirit we appropriate what Christ accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. We do not appropriate Christ's work by returning to the law. Yet, that was the message of the false apostles of Paul's day, and it remains the message of Paul's opponents today as well. Listen, any so-called Christian ministry that points you back to Moses after conversion to Christ is something other than a Christian ministry. And I dare say, that any so-called Christian ministry that points you away from Christ and away from the work of the Spirit as a continued process in the Christian life, as you are ever increasingly conformed to Christ in thought, word, and deed, any ministry after conversion that points you to some list of man-made rules has far more in common with the ministry of Paul's opponents in Corinthians than with Paul himself. Any ministry, for example, that tells you that somehow you must keep a list of rules about how you dress, about how often on Sunday you attend church, about whether you read the right uh, translation of the Bible, whether you take grape juice, or wine in the communion about whether you are um, uh, tithing 10% of your gross or not. And down the list we can go. Any ministry that sees your conversion and then hands you a list of man-made rules like that is a ministry of the super-apostles, is a ministry of a false apostle it is a not it is not a christian ministry for the simple reason that they are substituting a list of man-made rules and boy are they vehement about that i i've had a pastor once tell me that if i was not taking wine in the communion that i had to question whether or not i was truly justified before god i was truly born again and there are those, that, those today who will tell you that if you don't read the King James Bible, that you're probably not saved. 
There are those today who will tell you, if you don't come back to church on Sunday night, that you are not among the truly faithful. And the list goes on and on and on. So any ministry that fails to facilitate ever-increasing conformity to Christ in you is something other than a Christian ministry. They may use Christian symbols. They may use Christian terminologies. They may insist that they believe the Bible. But if they are, facil if they are not facilitating in you, if they are not facilitating in you, the image and glory of Christ, quite frankly, they are not a Christian ministry. Simple as that. Now, you say, Rick, that's pretty extreme. Well, <laughs> what would be less extreme? What is more important than you growing in the image and glory of Christ? I tell you, at this point, we better be clear. Because it is God's primary purpose in your life. If you are in Christ, to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's the purpose for which God causes all things to work together for good. It is what he's doing in your life. You need never wonder what God is doing in your life if you have that paradigm. You understand that. God's interested in one thing above all things, and that is you becoming like his Son. And he's given us of his spirit. He's given us the gospel throughout scripture as the means by which that occurs. And the fellowship and teaching and comfort and nurture of the church. So let me ask you, are you presently involved in a Christian ministry? Or is it something other than a Christian ministry? How can you know, you ask? Well, do you experience the hope that comes as you grow in Christ-likeness? Then you are in a Christian ministry. Thanks be to God. But if you are not experiencing the hope that comes as you grow in Christ-likeness, then I pray that you find another ministry and continue to listen to this study in 2 Corinthians, or one like it, or do the exegesis and the study yourself. But dig into the text Read it within its context. Read good commentaries. Come to understand that proclamation must be accompanied with appropriation to be the full gospel. And it's only the fullness of the gospel that will bring you to the fullness of maturity in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing, beloved, that is more important than that. I hope you can hear my zeal, my passion around this for you. I have people come into my counseling office on a regular basis who are good Christian people. But their lives and their marriages and their relationships and even their mental health is a train wreck. They've heard enough of the gospel to be converted, but they've never been taught how to grow in Christ. They've never been taught how to walk in the Spirit. Sometimes, tragically, if I mention something like, are you aware 
that you are to be conformed into the image of Christ? Are you aware that God's paramount purpose for you is to become like his son in the here and the now by the work of the Spirit? And they will look at me as if I'm talking a foreign language. I once had a client ask me, what is the paradigm for your counseling ministry? In other words, what is the theory? What is the counseling or uh, psychological theory that you operate out of? And I, I told her, I said, that Christ be formed in you. Galatians 4.19. And that startled her. She was surprised. I don't know what she was expecting me to say. Maybe something like Freudian or Jungian or Rogerian or some other popular secular psychology. But I told her, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Facilitating that work in you by the Spirit. Because that's the answer, folks. I spent three and a half years studying... um, chemical abuse, chemical dependency, and studying uh, secular psychology. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it leaves you empty. It leaves you without what you need. It's not altogether bad. There's some good, important things that you can learn from good chemical dependency programs. And there's some very important things that have been uncovered through uh, some good use of psychology. But In the final analysis, it's not salvific. It's not going to save you. It's not going to bring you into union with Christ and reconciliation with God by grace through faith. And it will not appropriate the righteousness of Christ into your character and thus bring you in a place where your mental, relational, and um, uh, spiritual health are recovered. Well, that was, that was the driving point of part one. So let's, let's look back at our text now as we get into part two here. God opens and closes doors. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. Our text reads like this, quote, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. End quote. Or may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. So Paul was a traveling man. He's gone to Troas, which is in Asia Minor, part of his missionary journeys, his three missionary journeys. And he's gone there with the intention to preach the gospel of Christ, to preach the good news of Christ to pagan Gentiles. Listen, if we're doing evangelism, we need to be very clear in our own minds that what we're presenting is truly good news. I dare say that the average Christian doesn't believe that the Gospels, I mean, it's pretty good news. It's it's better news than going to hell would be. Glad I'm going to heaven. But to speak with 
the gospel, speak of the gospel as being good news with a great deal of delight and conviction is not common among Christians. So we have to be very clear that we have not only a gospel of conversion, but appropriation that makes participation in the life and glory of Christ into your life on a daily basis in the here and now such good news that it compels us to tell others. I believe, Paul said, therefore I have spoken. So Paul is preaching the good news of Christ to pagan Gentiles. And listen, these Gentiles were a hard crowd. They were steeped in Greek philosophy, Roman paganism. Now, some of them were God-fearers, quote-unquote, meaning uncircumcised Gentile attenders at the local Jewish synagogue. Some of them have recognized that Greek philosophy and Roman paganism just wasn't cutting it, and they're, they're attracted to the ethical life of the Jews in the area. And so they're attending the local Jewish synagogue as visitors. But when Paul will come into these areas, sometimes both the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews would riot. Riots would ensue after Paul preached. Other times, Paul would be just simply dismissed as was in Athens in Acts 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll hear more about you from this some other time. Other times, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Let's look at Acts chapter 20, for example. Paul tells the Ephesian elders there, quote, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. End quote. That's Acts 20, 22-24. So Paul is compelled by the Spirit. And he's going. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. In Jerusalem, in this case. The Holy Spirit has warned him that prison and hardships are facing him, however. And what's Paul's response? I consider my life worth nothing to me. Now, did Paul have good news to share? Paul was so compelled by the spirit and the content of his message that he considered his very life nothing compared to that work. His only purpose was to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus had given him. What was that task? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul had a complete meal deal, if you will. He came to those Gentiles saying, listen, not only has God reconciled you through the blood of the cross, he has raised his son from the dead so that you might be in union with him. So you can know in your life the appropriating work of Christ and the cross, have it appropriate into your life through grace and by the Spirit. There's a new creation, 
a new heaven and a new earth coming, and you can be part of it. It was good news. He had zeal. He had passion. He had conviction. And it was at work in his own life. Paul had no illusions of what awaited him. He knew he was preaching the gospel of Christ to a hostile audience. Listen, there was no stadium filled with adoring fans who had brought their unsaved friends to hear the famous preacher. There was no welcoming committee awaiting him at the port. Now, he and his associates went out to preach to a hostile world, in the, but in the power of the Spirit, not knowing what would become of them as a result. But he was compelled. He was a traveling man who was compelled by the Spirit, not by personal gain, not by personal fame, or even the assurance of safety and a positive reception by the crowd. But he was compelled by the Spirit to go and by the deep conviction that he was actually preaching good news. Compelling good news. News that neither Greek philosophy or Roman paganism or uh, Jewish legalism could begin to offer. So this is the first point to understand in New Covenant Ministry of the Spirit. Evangelism is compelled by the Spirit and the truly good news, therefore, of the content of the gospel. Now, our text today, let me remind you, is from 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. And everything I just told you about Paul is contrasted by those in verse 17, a little bit down the page of your Bible there, that there are many then and now who merely peddle the word of God for profit. The many, Paul says, not the few, not others, not a select group, the many then and now who may merely peddle the word of God for profit. They don't see the people they're reaching out to as souls in need of good news. They see it as giving units, as Bill Hybels used to refer to potential church members, giving units. When I was in Bible college way back in the Ice Age, <laughs> I, I, uh, I remember one of my professors in evangelism talking to, talking to me about how that we, we were to reach out to people, uh, but reach out to the more affluent first. If we're going to plant a church, that we needed to identify the more affluent neighborhoods in our area and go out and knock on those doors first and find out what that was they wanted in a church. And if we were to create a church like that, would they come? And then when they came, they would become the, the foundational givers of the church upon which you could be assured of having a, a, a solid budget based upon those giving units that would then allow you to reach out to the less affluent people. Does that startle you? Does that shock you? It shocked me. I mean, I had been in business for 20 years prior to that. I, I understood the business model. I understood target marketing. And that's what he was teaching in that 
Bible class at that Bible college. He was teaching me, encouraging me, and even insisting that I peddle the word of God for profit. 2 Corinthians 2.17 Just as the many were doing in Corinth. And those people stood in opposition to Paul's ministry. So we don't have to go far in our own churches or in our own culture to see that which was opposing Paul in 2 Corinthians, that satanic counterfeit ministry that was opposing Paul, to see it at work in our own day. Now in contrast, it was in Christ that Paul spoke. Paul preached for an audience of one. Not to please people, not to attract seekers, not to sell people on Jesus. Paul spoke before God. He had an audience of one, and he spoke with sincerity as those sent from God. So let's look a little closer at our text now. Paul says he went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And listen closely now and found that the Lord had opened a door for him. Listen, this is the important other principle. We are compelled by the Spirit. We are compelled by the, the good news of the, the content of the gospel. And we understand that it is God who opens doors and closes doors for our evangelistic efforts. Evangelism just like the entirety of redemption, is of the Lord. Our text tells us that Paul went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and there, quote, found that the Lord had opened a door for me, end quote. Paul wasn't in Troas to initiate a campaign for Jesus. Paul didn't go to Troas to tell the people of Troas how Jesus gets us. He was not there to do marketing surveys. Paul had come to realize his itinerary was set by the Spirit of God himself. It was the Lord who must open the door for evangelism. You know, Psalm 127 comes to mind. Verse 1, Unless the Lord builds a house, the builder what? Labors in vain. The psalmist goes on to say, quote, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. But I fear that at times in the last 50 years, if we didn't sense the Lord was opening the door, we just went to another direction. We just adopted some other strategy. In the last 50 years, we have experienced, therefore, a wave of evangelical gimmicks and schemes largely adopted by worldly sales and marketing programs with this one purpose in mind, in order to get the unbeliever to like us and to like Jesus and to come to our church. Listen, when we refuse to rely upon God and wait for an open door in evangelism, we do tend to adopt worldly strategies to open doors that God has not opened. How many times have evangelistic programs been f uh, 
fueled and funded and marketed by the churches to push on a door marked pull or to push on a door that God has closed. The truth is, we are yet to be fully redeemed and there's still a part of our flesh that wants us to be in control, not God. And that's important in mind to be mindful of that, isn't it? So when we refuse to rely upon God and wait for an open door, we do tend to adopt other strategies. But this was not Paul's program or even his mentality. Let's look at a few of the texts here. Acts chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. This is a report. It says, From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, meaning Paul and his associates, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So Paul had completed a phase of his missionary journey work. And arriving back at Antioch, which was a sort of a base camp for his ministry, arriving there, they gathered the church together, and listen closely now, and reported all that God had done through them and how God, he, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul went on this missionary journey compelled by the Spirit, motivated by the glorious good news and the content of the gospel, and discovered that God had opened a door through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In our subject text, we've discovered that Paul had done the same thing. He had gone to Troas and discovered there that God had opened a door. And he got restless. Titus was delayed. So either in Troas or in Macedonia or in the whole region, he sensed the door was opening, so he didn't wait around. He went on to Macedonia. And we should note here also that Paul was restless and he had no peace of mind because he was waiting for Titus. That, in that time, shipping, boat travel, ship travel, was, was very subject to the weather, of course. And if Titus was delayed because he was coming by ground, it was going to be a while. So Paul got restless and took off, went to Macedonia. But one of the reasons Paul was restless because he needed a report from Corinth as to how things were going in Corinth. But we should also make note here that God never sends us out alone to do missionary or evangelistic work. Listen, the work of God is too much for one person. There was a time, C.K. Barrett points out, that Jesus was the church, period. There was a time when there was one faithful Jew in Israel, and that was Jesus. But in our work for Jesus, we must never go about it in isolation. It must be done with others. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Jesus had 12 disciples. He had three of those men who were very close to him. 
And Jesus never asked any of them to take on the Great Commission on their own, apart from the ministry and the support of them all. Likewise, in our subject text, Paul did not find his brother Titus there, his brother in the faith, of course, and so he said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But the greater point, as we read in Acts 14, is that Paul reported to the church in his missionary journey, not that his campaign had been successful, not that his marketing surveys had turned out well, to be true, but that he had op- that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God opens and closes doors. It is God's work, it is to be in God's timing, and it is God's spirit that brings a result, not worldly wisdom and schemes. You know, a few years ago, most churches had to have an espresso stand in their foyer. Do you remember that? The foyer. <laughs> I mean, we've gone through trends and schemes and gimmicks. In the last, has it been 48 years that I've been in the church? <laughs> Since 1973. I remember having to have an espresso stand. I remember having to have a, a, a theater-like atmosphere. I rem- we have gone through so many schemes and gimmicks to try to get the church to like people to like us in the church. We had to ask visitors to fill out surveys of what they liked and didn't like about the service. Listen, seldom in church history has there been such a shameless display of worldly evangelism as we have experienced in the last 50 years. Maybe the Crusades. Maybe the Inquisition. But what has happened in the last 50 years is that this worldly attempt to push on a door that God had closed or to fail to go through a door that God had opened has filled our churches with largely unregenerate churchgoers. And now we're in trouble. And now we've got to back up, call time out, and begin to actually teach these people so that the nature and the content and the truth of the gospel, so that they might truly be saved, they might truly come to faith in Christ, and then begin to appropriate the work of Christ into their lives. Why depend on God to open doors when we have technology and proven marketing programs? That would have been the thinking of Paul's opponents, Listen, the last thing the devil wants is men and women compelled by the Spirit to do evangelism. So the devil did not like Paul and his associates, for they are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit and not of the letter. Paul uh, had his ministry and the devil had his ministry, and both are active in Corinth. But as Craig Keener points out in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, the letter could only inform. The ministry of the letter can only inform. Do you feel like you're being informed about lots of Bible verses, but you're failing to be transformed? Are you being lectured to or are you being taught? Is your preacher talking over your head or is he talking to you? Keener points out the letter can only inform, whereas the Spirit came to transform. 
That's why that phrase, the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit, is so very vital to you to understand. And we're going to expand on that as we go through this study in 2 Corinthians. So, Paul is a man of the Spirit. He knows evangelism like the entirety of God's redemptive work in the world must be God's work. Let me give you another text. At 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthians of his winter travel plan, saying, quote, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Think of that. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Let me look back at that. I'm going to open my Bible for, for a moment here. 1 Corinthians 16. Yeah. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Two things Paul sought to discern here before he went off on an evangelistic effort. Is God opening a door, and is there opposition? <laughs> Think of that. How unlike many modern evangelists. Is there an open door? Has God opened a door? And as evidenced by the opposition, then we should go. Listen, if we're preaching a gospel that the world doesn't react to in opposition, then we're not preaching the gospel. The unbeliever who's running in hostile opposition, hostility to God in mind and body, is not going to necessarily be receptive to your good news of Christ and recall, call to repentance. Paul asked the church to pray for him in Colossians chapter 4, quote, that God may open a door for our message. See, it's a theme throughout the New Testament. Colossians chapter 4, we pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul needed to know there was an open door and that there was opposition because then he knew that that was what God and only the power of God could break down that opposition. Only the power and the Spirit of God through the gospel can take a heart made of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Only the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel can take a hostile mind and make it a mind of Christ. In that Colossian text, he even asked them to pray for how he delivers the gospel. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So Paul says, pray for an open door, pray for opposition, and pray for the clarity of my message. Folks, that's New Covenant evangelism. We look and listen and discern that God's opened the door. We expect opposition, and therefore we have a clarity of message and a content and a conviction empowered by the Spirit. Well, let me close with just these last few thoughts, the conclusion here. 
At Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, the risen Christ says these words, quote, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. End quote. Evangelism, as with all of God's redemptive work, must be of the Lord in order to be legitimate and effectual. Men reject God's ways and adopt worldly wisdom and schemes with the result of filling pews with unregenerate churchgoers who have yet to hear the gospel. God's purpose in evangelism is to reach the elect with the good news of reconciliation and transformation. And the means by which he does this is the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit. So ask yourself, are you under the new covenant ministry of the Spirit or of the letter? Are you trying to appropriate the righteousness of Christ into your life by following a list of man-made rules or by learning to walk in the Spirit? It is my hope for you that you will stay with this study and come to grow in the grace of God and the discernment necessary to walk in the truth. Amen.